Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Content Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Lucy Mert, founder of Method Marketing. And in this week's episode, I'm chatting to the lovely Matt Colley of Edidit about multilingual content. If you're thinking about breaking into non-English speaking markets, he has some great tips to help you get started. From translations to tone of voice, he explains how multilingual content is about more than just translation. Sound good? Then let's get started. Hi Matt, how are you? Hi, good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Busy old week, but getting there. Same. Yeah, that's all good. Um, for people who don't know you, could you maybe just give a bit of an introduction about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name's Matt Colley. I worked for Archant Dialogue, which is a um, content marketing company in Norwich for many, many years. During that time, I picked up a lot of knowledge about managing multilingual content. I've been generally involved in an editorial department and managing a team and doing all kinds of editing, proofreading, content strategy. But one thing I have a particular passion for is multilingual content. And that's something that I believe we're going to be talking about today. We are indeed. Um, And just to give you a bit of a plug, you've recently just started your own business as well um, called Edidit. Yeah, Edidit, Edidit. No one's quite sure how to pronounce it, myself included. Um, a lot of people have difficulty spelling it. So I'm learning as I go with things like branding and such like, but I'm going to call it Edit It and we're going to stick with it. That's E-D-I-D-I-T. And I've you know, been I've decided to start my own company then last summer after being made redundant for my previous role. And... Yeah, it's been a steady start, but I'm getting up to speed now and really enjoying all the challenges that being a business owner is throwing at me. Cool. And and you're continuing the similar services that you're doing at Art and Dialogue with proofreading and multilingual content, that kind of thing? Yeah, proofreading, editing and content strategy. I'm also working with startups around Norwich, maybe people who don't have as clear an idea of how their company is going to be publicised and how their content strategy might look. So I'm working, yeah, firstly with agencies, people who know they what they need, editing, proofreading and such like, and then people who maybe aren't quite so sure exactly what they need. So I can go in, get to know their company a little bit and advise them on you know, the best way forward in terms of reaching their target audience and reaching them with the correct messages. Sounds very exciting. Exciting times. It is. Yeah. Cool. And as you just touched on, we're going to be discussing multilingual content in this podcast. So can you explain roughly what that is, just to give people an idea of what multilingual content encompasses? Well, any company will have its mother tongue, if you like. So the majority of British and American businesses will have English as their mother tongue. You will find that in business globally, English is used as a lingua franca, i.e. people default to it. So it's a pretty safe assumption that English will be useful to you no matter what your mother mother tongue is. But what I can specialise in, what I've got a lot of years of experience of, is how you make that message relevant across different countries, different cultures, different languages. Translation is only the first part of it. Obviously, if you are creating a product or service that you wish to sell in a number of different countries, you may well want to get that content that um, originates in English translated into other languages that are useful, whether that's European, Roman languages, 
Italian, French, Spanish, or Arabic, or Chinese, or Japanese. You know, it all depends on your target markets. But the idea of a multilingual content strategy is to realise that it's not a case of one size fits all. It's not simply writing your content in English and translating it or sending it to a translation agency for them to translate it directly into French and send it back and then you put it on your French website. You know, that's just the first aspect of multilingual content. So what would be, what would come after that initial translation? What would be the next steps that you would take if you were looking after that multilingual content? Sure, well, it's, a lot of it is stuff you would actually do before you got to translation. So to begin with, you need to identify your target audience, obviously. If your target audience is only in the UK, then nothing is going to be lost in translation, clearly. But if you are a British business and you are run and owned and by English people or British people and you've only got British employees, then there is what people like to call CQ, which is cultural intelligence. So obviously you have IQ. Um, EQ, emotional intelligence, so CQ is one of the latest buzzwords, and that's making allowances for how different countries and different cultures perceive different methods of communication and interaction. And I think when you're at the very outset, you've got to work out where you're trying to sell your product or service, and then identify the differences in the target markets. Um, I have a lot of experience working with Harley Davidson. I've done multilingual content for Harley Davidson for more than 10 years. And obviously they're an American brand. They're very proud of their American, American heritage, but American iconography isn't going to sell the bike on its own. Obviously being American is an important thing and people in Asia or Europe or Africa who want to buy a Harley Davidson bike know it to be an American brand and sign sign into that but also you've got to look at how people receive communications what kind of cultural sensitivities there may be little turns of phrase tones of voice that are particular to a language or a culture that you're not going to know about from where you are in the UK so before you even go to translation you've got to identify what your brand is, what it stands for, what its tone of voice is, what its audience is in English, how you're going to write in English. And once you've got your English tone of voice sorted and you're comfortable creating content in your mother tongue, you've then got to find people who are sympathetic enough to be able to not just translate the words, but also translate the cultural sensitivities and make sure that the same message is conveyed without necessarily using the same language. That's really fascinating. So do you have any tips or how would you go about looking at those cultural differences? Would it be something that you'd look at initially before the translation or would you work with someone in market, for instance, to find out about how the two cultures differ? Or is it you find desk research and research online? Are there any steps you typically take? You would certainly want to do some research for yourself before you embark upon doing a multilingual content strategy, absolutely. It cannot do any harm at all to research how people do business in different countries. And also, you know, there are two levels of it here. One is the level of how you will interact with 
the people who are running your company in those markets or who are representing you in those markets. And secondly, there's the language of the consumer. The people are actually hopefully going to be buying your product. So you need to make sure that you've got someone who you trust in every market mm-hmm. who will be able to make you aware of those sensitivities and advise you on the best way to approach um, translating your entire proposition into that language and that culture. Now, it may be that you're only a small company, you want to branch out into those cultures but and com- uh, countries, but you don't yet have the know-how or the footprint or the money to be able to get you know to open an office in Berlin or whatever so that's where it's really important to choose the right translation agency Mm -hmm. there are a lot of agencies in my experience that are less than brilliant Mm -hmm. let's say and I've certainly encountered projects where I believe um I'm going to be blunt. People are doing it on a cost model. And mm-hmm. effectively, the company runs on how quickly and cheaply can we turn around these translations to maximise our profit. And you know, it's a very nuanced thing. And I'm not saying that the translations these people do are going to be hopeless. But it's really important that you feel that the company that you pay money to, to translate your brand, your passion into other languages, understands your message in your mother tongue and can then effectively pass that message on to the people who are actually going to be doing the translating. A lot of translation agencies don't have hundreds of people in-house in a big office. They manage the systems, they manage the projects, and then they will outsource the projects to onboarded translators, freelance translators, people who represent that agency but are not necessarily employed by them are there any tips or accreditations that maybe people should look for um i know that you can get some iso accreditations are there any other tips for um yeah certification bodies or anything like that that you would look for um i'm going to be honest and say no okay i'm sure there are well i'm not sure there are (laughs) i would imagine there are and i don't know okay but i think you know if there's anyone listening who would like to let me know I'd be really interested to know what kind of accreditations there are out there Mm -hmm. but um, certainly it's very easy to be sucked in by an initial proposition someone saying yeah we'll do this we'll do that we'll make sure it's consistent we'll build up a glossary of terms that all our translators will be provided and that will be provided to all our translators before they commence work but ultimately there's every chance that a company can still be just trying to squeeze margins and be sending it to a translator and saying, we need this with X turnaround and we're going to pay you Y amount and just trying to maximise their profits by you know, not giving the best conditions to the translator to do the best job. So I think it's really important that you try to arm yourself with as much information as possible before you approach a translation agency so you know exactly what you want and you can question them to make sure that they're going to deliver on their promises. How do they make sure it happens? Do they have robust um, strategies in place? How do they deal with errors? If I go back and I notice an error, 
I'm, am I going to get a reduction in the cost that I've put down the, the money that I paid for that translation, etc., etc.? Um, yeah, I'm convinced that there are certainly at least one or two translation translation agencies out there who probably still shudder at the thought of getting one of my emails <laughs> <laughs> when I found it's... this and this and this and this in these different languages. It's quality control. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that there are companies that really do care about that kind of thing. I think, again, a massive global translation supplier is going to operate on a cost model at its core, you know, irrespective of the quality of the final product. You know, they're looking to scale up and they're looking to make, you know, make it as profitable, profitable a business as possible. But if there are smaller local agencies, obviously they'll have a smaller pool to work with and perhaps not be quite as quick in turning things around, but you can certainly get a better idea of the provenance of your translations. And there's one company in Norwich that I've recently um, gone to meet called um, Integro Languages, or Integro? I'm not Integro, sure. Integro. Yeah. You've heard of them? I have heard of them, yeah. yes, run by Mr. Tom Bull. Uh, yes, that was who I went to meet mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, we ended up having a really long, geeky conversation about the corners that translation agencies tend to cut, how you can identify them. And yeah, Tom's company is absolutely nailed on to understand your um, tone of voice and your overall branding. And ultimately, they will only work with clients who they think actually have a profound interest in developing their brand and adhering to structures and you know ultimately they will do a lot of the QC for you if you're not quite sure what you need to do but you know it's going to be on point and it will help you to develop it's a great tip yeah I'd certainly recommend them but again I'm sure if, if you're listening elsewhere outside Norwich and Norfolk I'm sure there will be a lot of other smaller agencies and you know probably big agencies as well that have uh, you know probably have accreditations I don't know about <laughs> and but yep. you've got to do your research before you commit to anything Great. that's um, trans- um translation 101 really um and in terms of industries are there any that you are seeing more uh, demand for multilingual content or is it across the board that all industries there's no particular specifics i think it's you know as with business in general you know, wherever a business sector is growing there will be a demand for multilingual content we're becoming increasingly globalized as a culture and i don't see that going into reverse gear anytime soon we're opening up and doing business with markets that traditionally maybe were a little more closed particularly in asia and um, the growing economies Brazil, Russia, India, China, and you know people who are looking to develop truly global brands. Mm. You know it, it can happen in any sector where there is growth, but certainly I would say healthcare is a huge sector with you know a lot of global um, impetus to fight things like diabetes, um, mental health issues, stuff like that. There, you know, I think the old model of going to one's GP to get a diagnosis is increasingly being replaced by Dr. Google. Mm-hmm. And I know that you know, healthcare is something that's going to completely transform 
over the next generation. So again, I think you'll find increasing amount of need for multilingual content there. Automotive sector is always going to be huge. And I think as you know, that's another industry that's going to go under um, colossal change in the next 20 years and um, becoming more carbon neutral, electric cars, driverless cars. But yeah, I mean, if I thought long and hard enough, I could probably make a case for any industry sector really, <laughs> other than hyper-local stuff. Fair enough. Yeah. If it's global, then it's going to need multilingual. Okay, cool. Um, and are there particular types of content that you're seeing requested more than others? Um, certainly in the lifespan of my work with Harley-Davidson, which was like 12 years up to last year, obviously digital is something that has happened already mm -hmm. but 12 years ago perhaps there was a much higher premium on print products and the digital journey is still it, it will always continue to become more complex but you know, anyone who's anyone in a global context now will have a website that functions in multiple different languages so web website content web copy Absolutely. I think something that's certainly growing is um, live translation. And I remember speaking to a guy who um, had a previous role with an agency in Helmand province in Afghanistan, and they were having to find... Um, I've forgotten the word for when... Like, um, interpreters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and having to find interpreters in Afghanistan who were willing to translate between the local dialect and British or English and American English for things like you know, trials for okay. um, Taliban people. Members, um, I don't know. But also having to find people who could interpret and translate live, but also remain completely neutral. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and a kind of perhaps less concerning um, sphere, just things like events and mm. being able to subtitle videos. Video is obviously hugely more prevalent than it was 10 years ago due to having bigger bandwidth and being much easier to have video content online. And so there's a whole world of translation beyond the printed page and that's only going to keep growing. Are there any dangers, because you were saying about websites and how they're available in multiple languages, of using Google Translate to do that for you? Or would you recommend having a specifically um, geographically located, geographically focused website? Funnily enough, <laughs> if you want to fail in business, in a multilingual business, use Google Translate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, just go for it. You know, if, you, if you're thinking, I haven't got time for this, but I want to press ahead anyway, just go for it. Use Google Translate, see what happens. It'll be fun. But... Genuinely, it is an increasingly interesting topic because the quality of machine translation and artificial intelligence is getting better all the time. Mm -hmm. it's, AI is getting more nuanced, more able to understand the way that humans write and to replicate it. I know that there is an AI tool that writes business stories for, I can't remember 
whether it was New York Times or Huffington Post or something like that, whatever it was. But there, there is actually a certain kind of dry, factual, short 200-word online business article that can now be written using a tool that just replicate, learns and replicates like a neural network. Um, neural networks are great, by the way. Um, okay. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the most it's a bit of an aside, but you know, computing language is a language as well, mm-hmm. and um, it's essentially feeding a ton of data into a computer, and in time it will identify patterns. So, for example, there was a woman who fed like thousands and thousands and thousands of recipes from recipe books into this um, neural network into a computer and asked it to identify patterns and in time it would learn to generate its own recipes however what the computer can't do is understand the meaning behind the letters it will just identify the pattern so when i say carrot you think of a long pointy orange vegetable the computer just thinks of characters glyphs in a you know a set of a language set so it would start off with gobbledygook and then as he fed in more and more suddenly you would see things that started to resemble words and then measurements like quarter of a cup and eventually it would get to a point where it was creating things that were roughly you know recognizable as recipes but they would have humorous things in like half a cup of no sugar and mm-hmm. <laughs> just words that sounded like um meat but weren't quite like peef (laughs) (laughs) you know it's it's really good fun but it's just another way of illustrating that you know language is a very nuanced thing Mm. and even though a computer can do a great job of imitating what humans write it doesn't have the nuance to understand the emotion and the reasoning the, log- uh, the logic that we employ behind trying to appeal to those pe- uh, people's emotions when you're trying to, you know, effectively you know, monetize things, mm-hmm. sell products and services. Yeah, and the, the emotion and the, maybe how emotionally charged maybe some languages and things like that a computer is never going to understand. No, but as time goes by, you know, there are um, tools that you can use, mm-hmm. um, even down to things which anyone can use, like macros on Microsoft Word. You can use, you can program macros to go through a document and make changes to it. So you can, you know, look for things, and then you can do, you can search all, or you can edit in line as you go, or if you're, you know, when you're really confident, you can do global changes. So, for example. You know, people who used to work in typing pools would always put a double space at the end of sentences. Nowadays, we tend to use a single space. So if you wanted to go through your um, 300-page novel that you're proofreading and get rid of all the double spaces, then you could just write a macro that would go through and do it automatically. So, you know, that's certainly something where computers can certainly help us with, me, with translation and editing. And the same thing in that you can teach it to identify patterns or words for example putting accents on the correct words in Spanish or French and beyond that you can move to um, excuse me sorry I lost my thread for a moment there no it's great um, so you know you, beyond macros you can then yeah you'll then reach a point where 
a computer will be able to do a first pass for you. And mm-hmm. you, it's like, if you ask someone to proofread something for you, then the first time you ask them to proofread the document, you'll ask them to track the changes so you can see what they've done. Mm-hmm. And in time, hopefully you'll trust them enough that they just, just send me back when it's done. But you can actually teach a computer to do a, a translation for you. But ultimately, it, we're a long way yet from being able to trust that. I personally don't think we're at the stage yet where you can get a computer to translate something and then edit what the computer has done. Because going backwards and forwards between the source and the destination document and, you know, I, mm. I, I don't think we're quite there yet. But I think at the moment you can certainly, you'll always need a native speaker of your destination language, your target language to conduct the translation. But I think certainly when you're looking at a larger body of work and continuous work, a computer will be able to go back and identify inconsistencies between documents and help you to standardise them, make them consistent, build a glossary of terms, which should ideally be shared between the client and the agency. Mm -hmm. And that kind of thing is really, really important to ensure not just that it's free of errors, but also that it sings as much as it does in your source language. You know, so much effort, I'm sure, if you're, if you're been running or have started a company or working at an executive level, then you will know about how much work has gone into building and branding the company you work for. Mm-hmm. But it's equally important that that level of detail goes into every language set that you wish to sell your product with or your mm-hmm. service. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, alongside Google Translate, potentially being an error, are there any other common mistakes that people make? Like, I think, potentially, if you're changing alphabet, so if you're going from a Western alphabet to maybe Arabic or something like that, are there common mistakes that people need to bear in mind when they're you working with multilingual content? I would say that it's still... I know I've used the word nuance too much in this podcast already, but there are lots and lots of idiosyncrasies of any language that you're not going to be able to understand without a lot of practice and exposure. Um, With the Roman alphabet, all the languages that use the Roman alphabet, I'm confident working with them. I don't speak them, but it's pattern recognition effectively you're like a computer in that you will notice patterns of words and the more you work with a certain language the more you will notice this word goes with this kind of um, copy or that must be related to cars because it always comes up when we're talking about cars whatever and it get to the point after you know nearly 20 years of working with complex multilingual projects with like 12 14 different languages on the go that I can go back to my guy in Norway and say, hey, isn't there a spelling mistake here? That word's not right. And he says, how do you do that? I don't know. You, you don't speak Norwegian, do you? It's like, no, I don't. But I recognise patterns in things. And I've seen that word so many times, I notice that those two letters are on the wrong way around. Um, but certainly when it comes to things that use other alphabets, I would always make sure that you outsource that to someone who is if not a native speaker, then at least a competent and fluent 
person. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got to be a native speaker, really. Because I'm thinking about the move towards Chinese and Mandarin. Obviously, yep. the alphabet works completely differently. So if you were working in, on a layout, that it would mm. look completely different. So a lot of Chinese websites look different from Western websites. And certainly, if you're working in a print layout, you'd need to bear that in mind, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even down to stylistic preferences, how websites look and feel and interact, you know, it's not something I have a huge amount of experience in. But again, if the language that's being used, the terminology that's being used has to be looked at very carefully to assure it's appropriate for the audience, then you would also want to consider stylistic preferences, visual preferences. It may be that perhaps a society that is, I don't know, maybe a third world country where there isn't such rampant, prevalent usage of the internet among everybody. It may be that if you were looking to target markets that were emerging and people didn't have regular use of the internet, then you might want to look at simplifying it to make sure that it's you know incredibly user-friendly. Whereas, you know, if you're selling in the USA or, or in Britain, then you know, it's perfectly normal to, you know, have layers of graphics and rollovers that expand and all that kind of stuff. But, mm. you know, it's much more than just getting a translator to say, hey, can you get this into German for me? Or mm. Whatever. And I guess that brings us back to why you'd need a specialist who's used to handling multilingual content to ask those questions and to help you find your way through that process. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, this is an ideal scenario that I'm, you know, I'm going through all the pitfalls and as I said, my hands-on experience has been with big global clients like Harley Davidson and Saab, Jeep, um, and obviously, you know, they have money to throw at this kind of stuff. And if you're just starting out, but you know that there are big markets in Europe or Asia, then it's more about a consultancy thing so you know my experience would be that I would be able to come in and look at your proposition and say yes you know this is viable this is valid it's but it's gonna you know this this is the minimum you need to do to get a viable product to market or service to market in that mm -hmm. particular market um you know at a base level getting a website translated and repopulate repopulating it and typesetting it in European languages isn't a problem. As soon as, you know, I, I could populate or repopulate a website, I could recommend a translator, we could get the text translated, make sure that the translator is building relationship with you to understand your brand and ensure that the translations you receive are on point and fit for purpose for your audience in each market. Um, after that, you know, it's populating and typesetting there are so many little things that can go wrong mm. when you don't speak a language or have experience working with it for example the way that people um, display numbers in different countries so whereas to write 1000 we would do one comma and three zeros some markets have a full stop there one full stop and three zeros some markets just have a space one blank three zeros and some people just run the number full without any spaces or punctuation and then for example where in French you tend to have spaces before certain punctuation points like colons semicolons exclamation marks question marks certainly it was the case 15 years ago that they would always have spaces before those I've noticed 
that um, some markets don't do, or some French-speaking markets don't do that anymore. But you know, they're all little things that you need to consider. And even you know, when you're laying things out, if you've got a quote that's been blown up, then would you have a full stop at the end of the sentence? Or some people don't. In, in, in England or Britain, we usually wouldn't. But you know, there are so many little things, and hyphenation is another one. And woe betide you if you get hyphenation <laughs> wrong in German. Oh really? Oh yeah, and because German obviously has lots of compound, complex words which mm-hmm. just shunt together lots of other words. I always remember from my GCSE the word for speed limits was Geschwindigkeitsbegrenzungen, and it's like twenty-eight letters long or something. So. You've got to be able to hyphenate it, otherwise every line is only going to be about <laughs> have two words on it. Um, it's, the text is going to look really gappy, so you have to know where the syllables start and end, so you know where to hyphenate the word. And if you get it wrong, then to any German person reading it, it will look as out of place as if, mm-hmm. you know, I'd put two cues back to back in the middle of a word. Mm. You know, it's just, this is wrong, it's black and white. Um, you know, so that kind of experience is something that you're going to need to have or to have someone who has mm-hmm. to do it for you. And in terms of gaining that accuracy, would you recommend looking for a translation agency that does like double um, translations, like that would proofread their own translations, or would you hire two translators? Are there any set rules about how you guarantee that accuracy? Yeah, you should always have um, a linguist who does the body of the translation mm-hmm. and then a human proofreader who double checks it. Cool. And then on top of that, there should also be, as I said, um, comp- computerised checks for adherence to glossary that will go through a document and pull out anything that's, you know, so for example, if you've got s- something within your brand that is a, a proper noun, is capitalised, is a brand name, then it will automatically do a search for that word and flag anywhere where it doesn't have a capital letter or, you know, it will search for a string of that word but with any two characters shifted around for spelling mistakes, stuff like that. Um, You know, there's a lot of stuff that computers can and should do to to aid high-quality translation, Mm -hmm. but the moment you start thinking about using Google Translate or what you learn at school or university, you're entering potentially into a world of hurt. Good warning. <laughs> also, I just remember from when we worked together, you know, just making sure you run a spell checker over it after you've done that proofread, just to make sure, so, you know, make sure that someone in your team has run a language-specific spell checker over the top of it can always help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the agency should do that for you and you're paying for a service mm-hmm. that means those errors shouldn't be there. But you know, when you're dealing with the volume of work that uh, something like... Know, Harley Davidson magazine, twelve different languages. You know that volume of work. It it's ultimately human error. No matter how strong the processes are, there will still be mistakes. You know, I've been a proofreader for nearly twenty years, but I have made mistakes because I'm a human being. You know, it doesn't matter how good you are, you're always going to make mistakes because mm-hmm. you're human. And even you know, it can almost introduce another layer of potential for mistakes when you've got a computer checking a human checking a computer and Mm -hmm. all these different layers you could actually end up it's complex but there have been instances where they got it right first time and the computer's queried something and then the second linguist has gone back and changed it to something that was actually wrong um 
But again, yeah, your agency should be really up to speed on this. And hopefully, if you're thinking that you want some multilingual content and you want to go and approach an agency, then hopefully listening to this podcast will give you a lot of ammunition, a few bullet points to go and twist them, twist their arm. Like, right, I will, you know, I'm interested in doing business with you, but what do you do about this? You know, play clueless to begin with and then let them sell it to you and then, you know, come in with half a dozen questions and they'll be like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I'm not sure where you stand on foul language. So Our market is explicit, it's fine. Okay, you've got, you've got a bleep. You've got a bleep, have you? I haven't got a bleep, but mm. I uh, you can just mark it before you upload your podcast. So it says... What, so people explicit. get a warning before I swear? It will say it before you hit play. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Um, just remind us of your um, website URL again, where people can find out more about you. <laughs> it's um, edit it, which is E-D-I-D-I-T, or E-D-I-D-I-T.co.uk. And yeah, I'm delighted to speak to anyone who's thinking about branching out into multilingual content and you know that's no fee just bring me in for a chat and a coffee if you want to ask us ask some questions and find out whether it's viable perfect thanks for coming on the show no problem thanks for having me